to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week we discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. We can be found at the NevadaIndependent.com. I'm joined today by two of our reporters, Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder. Hi, guys. Hey, John. Hi, John. So... There really was only one story this week, uh, uh, but we'll try to talk about more than that one story, uh, Riley and Michelle. And that, of course, is the story that ended late last night. Made me uh, once again glad that we live on the West Coast because it ended at about 10 or 11 o'clock for us and uh, a lot later for people on the, on the East Coast. And that was the failure of the Republicans to repeal uh, Obamacare. They went at the last minute for something called the skinny repeal. We can talk about that. But the focal point for Nevada on this whole thing uh, was Dean Heller. And can you cite, Riley, every vote that Dean Heller took and which way he voted? Um, yes, but not right now. <laughs> right now. So, no, not so, live on the podcast now. So let's talk about Dean Heller's ro- role in all this. I'll start with you, Riley. Uh, uh, let, let's let uh, the listeners know that he was considered a swing vote from the m- minute that they had the motion to proceed uh, a few days ago. It was a few days ago, right? Mm-hmm. All, all, all the days are blurry now. We're recording this on Friday. Uh, and he was a, he was one of the key votes. Uh, it just the motion to proceed to the bill, meaning to debate the bill. Then what happened? Um, I think I'm, I'm going to actually jump back a little bit further because I think to understand, like, you know, the complexity of where Dean Heller is coming on all of this, like, requires going back to, like, 2012 when he ran against Shelley Berkeley in his last uh, Senate campaign. And he ran on repealing Obamacare. Like, it's not that hard to do a Twitter search and find all the times he said, Obamacare is awful. It's killing jobs. We need to repeal and replace, repeal and replace, repeal and replace. This was going on up until, um, you know, even during the election in 2016. So he has this long history of statements and votes that are trying to get rid of Obamacare. Um, and, you know, now that they've – the dogs caught the car, their Republicans are in control, um, he's sort of backed off that a little bit. And he had this uh, press conference with Governor Brian Sandoval who uh, expanded Medicaid in Nevada. Um, and he said, I'm not going to vote for anything that cuts Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion population. I'm not going to vote for anything that takes um, millions of people's health insurance away. So he kind of laid down this gamut after laying down a different gamut um, during his first run. So that's kind of where we were ahead of this week when the Senate first got the bill. And there was a lot of sort of um, questions coming into the week whether or not he would support the motion to proceed, which is sort of this um, procedural, like they're going to start debate, they're going to start actually voting and taking amendments, doing all that. So it was sort of the first step. And there was a lot of pressure on him not to support it. There was a lot of pressure on him from donors, from people in the Republican Party, from Mitch McConnell to support it. So he did end up voting in favor of the motion to proceed. Even though he had said he would vote against it the last time when the bill was up about a month ago. And we should take one more piece of history, and I'm glad you brought up all that context, is that uh, they were also at some point going to vote on what they call a straight repeal. In other words, a repeal Obamacare, but with no replacement, maybe two years in the future. He had a, a chance to vote for that already as a risk-free vote in the, in, in the Obama years, uh, and, and because it was clear he was going to veto it, he voted yes. So now we're now we're back to this week. Yeah, and I think in 2015 when he did vote yes, he said, like, it's going to be vetoed, so I don't care about what it does because right. it's never going to become law. Except but. for repealing the Cadillac tax, which we'll get to in a minute. He, mm-hmm. was, he put out a press release in 2015 about that. Didn't say a word about Medicaid until he was asked about it, and, and, and you're right. He said, well, it's going to be uh, vetoed, and the Cadillac tax amendment again came up. But we don't want to get too far ahead of us in this long and winding story. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, we come into Monday and it's a 50-50 vote. um, And, you know, Mike Pence is the president of the Senate, so he can break ties. So it went forward 51-50 and sort of 
Throughout the week, we had a number of different amendments that were offered. Uh, this procedure that they were bringing the bill forward is sort of this like arcane Senate thing that we sort of had to learn because it's so different from you know how you usually learn how bills become law. So they had 20 hours of debate, so we watched a lot and a lot of C-SPAN uh, of what they said, all these different um, uh, motions. The Democrats kept trying to bring the bill back to committee to have a chance to slow it down. Heller himself had two amendments that he offered and, and brought forward. One was this uh, sense of the Senate. It was sort of a symbolic resolution that said, we still want to repeal Obamacare, but we want to keep the Medicaid expansion population in place. And that failed on a um, 10 to 90 vote to try and bring that up for a vote. What was the vote? 10 to 90. 10 to 90. Uh, by the way, uh, th this again, this this desire for Heller to preserve Medicaid was the first time essentially we had heard about this because he had not been for that in the past, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tried to look back and I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But when um, the governor d did decide to expand the Medicaid population, um, you know, I don't think he put out any public statements or said he was like for it or against it. So it was sort of like a new concern for him, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, Michelle, it's interesting. We've covered a few ends of legislative sessions here in Nevada, and there's often a lot of hurry up and wait, and sometimes there's drama. But watching that, uh, uh, and again, we're on Friday now, last night, uh, to see that final vote come up and see people milling around in the Senate, and it was unclear how, any, how anyone, Dean Heller and a couple of others, uh, John McCain, who eventually became the deciding vote, and Lisa Murkowski, uh, uh, Susan Collins was essentially the only sure no. There was real drama there. You don't see that too often in politics where everything's choreographed, right? Yeah, it was, um, you know, they were like they had taken a vote before that, and it, then it just kind of stayed open. There was no action for about an hour and you're, you're watching and the drama became just trying to read the body language of these swing senators. Um, is McCain smiling? Is McCain hugging Diane Feinstein? And what does this all mean? <laughs> um, so that was quite the, the entertaining spectacle on Twitter. Um, and you see Mike Pence coming in and trying to persuade McCain. Um, and it, it looked like McCain was not being uh, being persuaded by those those floor discussions. So yeah, it was a real suspenseful thing. And I know that going into it, we were expecting it to, the skinny repeal to scrape by. Um, so it was actually a real surprise when when it looked like it was going to fail. And let's talk a little bit about some some people listening might not know what we're talking about, the skinny repeal. The Republicans could not get past the straight repeal. Uh, that, that failed. Uh, Heller voted against that, actually, even though he had voted against, voted for it in 2015. They couldn't get a partial repeal done. And so they finally settled on a skinny repeal, which essentially was a pared down, let's take a few of the things, including the individual mandate out, right? Yeah. So for all the talk of wanting to repeal Obamacare, nine Republicans, Republicans voted against um, the repeal and replace when there was actually something to replace it with. And seven of them voted against the clean repeal. So this was, uh, let's get all the controversial Medicaid stuff out of there, get more of these folks on board. And, and Heller had said, I believe the day before they ultimately voted, that he he thought that would be the way they would go is the skinny repeal and support it. And then he kind of backtracked on that to some D.C. reporter saying I'm undecided about it. And that was after uh, Governor Brian Sandoval signed on to a letter uh, with nine other governors, uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats, saying, don't do this, you know, get back to regular order. There should be a bipartisan solution, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that kind of added a wrench to the uh, conversation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the skiddy repeal is something that should have 
maybe been able to get through, uh, you know, it, as compared to some of the other plans, it's not 22 million people that would lose insurance, it's 15 million people, it doesn't deal with the Medicaid, it has some Planned Parenthood defunding in it, um, and, and repeals the two um, it mandates, the employer mandate and the, the individual mandate. Uh, but as we saw, uh, not, not even that could <laughs> pass a muster. I think the really like crazy thing about the skinny repeal to me at least is that no one wanted it to pass. Like the whole reason and Lindsey Graham had this like bizarre press conference where he wanted like assurances that they would go into a conference committee where the House and Senate work out their differences on the bill. He wanted to go into a conference committee to totally rewrite it. Like no one – you had people who said like we don't want this to become law but we're going to vote for it anyway to like move it forward procedurally. You know, I mean, if you, if you listen to what you just said, I mean, people who are like normal and not like us who follow this stuff all the time, what Lindsey Graham said at that press conference with John McCain and what others uh, essentially said Republicans is, we need to pass this even though we don't think it's a good bill because it's a vehicle, a procedural vehicle, as you mentioned, to get to a conference committee, meaning where a House and Senate can then reach agreement on a bill. They essentially said, we hate this bill. Uh, and, and John McCain said that uh, at that press conference with Lindsey Graham and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Uh, Lindsey Graham actually called it a fraud and a disaster. This is about four hours before he said he was going to vote for it. Uh, just because he got assurances from the House Speaker on the phone, Paul Ryan, that they would go to this conference committee. I mean, normal people listening to this saying, this is how government works. They're voting for something they don't want to pass so they can get to something, even though there was no guarantee that this ultimately wouldn't become law. Right, guys? Yeah, and I think it was um, one of the situations, the reason why I thought it would pass is, you know, they need to save face and they need to get this through. and They need to get something through. And I thought they were going to pull the trigger on it and and move forward or put it into the great unknown of a conference committee with the House, uh, which is almost certain to make it uh, more expansive than it than it was coming out of the Senate. Uh, as we saw, it didn't happen. And mm -hmm. Heller, of course, was pummeled uh, by both sides throughout this, uh, and, and from the right and from the left, especially. Even while this vote was going on, press releases. Uh, were, were coming out. We didn't know for sure he was going to vote for the skinny repeal because, as you mentioned, he said he overall looked good. Then he went noncommittal after Sandoval signed onto that letter. I actually thought erroneously, because you're trying to hear the yes and no's on, on, on C-SPAN, he voted the first time his name was called. The way the Senate works, again, people should know, is they call the senator. Sometimes they're not there and they move on. I thought I heard a yes. I thought he had voted yes. Uh, originally, but he actually didn't vote until after McCain dramatically put up his hand and voted no, and then you knew it was going down. Heller voted almost immediately after that, I think, if I remember uh, correctly, and he still voted yes, even though it looked like it, that it, the vote then for him was completely meaningless, right? Yeah, and you know, it's there's a lot of questions and like a lot of people trying to figure out what's going through Dean Heller's mind. I think like the HuffPost guy uh, had a story. It's like, what what did Dean Heller do on healthcare? He's sort of um, you know, just we watched way too many hours of C-SPAN throughout this week, as I'm sure you did too, John. And just the the overwhelming sense that I got like throughout the week was that after the motion to proceed, uh, Dean Heller just became sort of less and less key to the whole conversation. You'd see DC reporters say like, all right, it's Murkowski, McCain, uh, McCain and all these uh, Susan Collins. But, you know, Heller's name sort of like kind of floated away as someone who was important, who was as a swing vote. And I think that was uh, really apparent when he signed on to this Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana Amendment that would have just basically moved a lot of the, the federal insurance rules to states and done like a lot more stuff on block grants while keeping in place all of the taxes um, on Obamacare. Like he joined on as a co-sponsor, but that never came up for a vote. 
he just sort of was, you know, he had he had a strange week, and I, I think there's a lot of people frustrated on both sides on how this turned out, but. As we've talked about before, there was a pro-Trump group that started running ads after he had this press conference with Governor Sandoval. And I think, you know, I've talked to many Republicans who are unhappy with him that aren't too thrilled about having him come up, you know, on a primary or a general. So I think there was a desire there to try to placate some of that base that, you know, hasn't been the most thrilled about Dean Heller, especially given his sort of coldness towards the president. Yeah, and he voted for the final bill, and I think Dean Heller's campaign thinks that, okay, he won't get a primary now maybe because he voted for the final, the skinny repeal, but he also voted against the straight repeal, which a lot of the conservatives are very upset about, as as you mentioned, uh, Michelle. And even during this time, before the final vote, Jackie Rosen, the congresswoman uh, who was running against Dean Heller, I think she put out a video in the middle of this attacking him. And then she put out this absolutely scathing statement, right, on Friday morning at 5 a.m. Uh, uh, our time, right? Yeah, saying that he had made the, the biggest, broken the politi- biggest promise in modern Nevada political history. And then the Dems had a statement later, you know, calling Dean Heller toast uh, in 2018. Uh, so, yeah, he's trying to thread a needle in it, and he's just taken a lot of different positions in this time and it's hard to really know where he he really believes i mean it it seems to give him some cover that he at least voted for this last bill he wasn't the one to kill it or or one of the ones that killed it. he wasn't the decisive vote the attention is on mccain uh but it's still hard to pinpoint where he he stands on this it seems to me yeah i think that's the problem for him right he can i mean there could be ads run by both sides against him next year using some of the votes uh that he's taken but we should probably step back and say you know it's a long time before the election we really don't know whether he's going to have a primary whether dina titus will get in against jackie rosen we don't know what impact this might have you know heaven forbid there could be a terrorist attack something else could make people completely uh forget this i don't think we know what the political damage is finally one last thing on Healthcare that we wrote about uh, as well was that the Democrats, and this is another crazy thing, a lot of Democrats who have always wanted single payer, uh, there was an amendment to do single payer, and the Democrats, most of them voted present, right? Yeah, so our colleague Megan Mesterly talked to Catherine Cortez Master, who's our Democratic senator, and you know, I think she called it like fraud. It's fraudulent. It's not really a bill. The, the, this amendment for single payer healthcare, sort of the Medicare for all, was from a Montana senator who's a Republican. And it was sort of just a political gamemanship. It's like, let's put the Dems, you know, big progressive pie in the sky idea up for a vote and see what they do. And so they got a lot of cover um, in the sense that Bernie Sanders told him, like, this is, you know, if you guys want Medicare for all, let's do it. But if this is just political games, I encourage everyone to vote present. But you did have, I think, like seven or eight Democratic senators vote no and the rest of them voted present, which was sort of interesting to see how that sort of broke down, you know, this is all sort of hypothetical because I don't think there's going to be like a legitimate push for Medicare for all while Donald Trump is president and Mitch McConnell Senate majority leader. Um, but, you know, it was interesting to see kind of where they stand. And I think that that issue specifically is going to be a big litmus test for Democrats in primaries coming yeah. up in 2018. It really divides uh, even the Nevada congressional de- delegation with Dina Titus kind of trolling her colleagues saying you guys should vote for Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at least three quarters of the the Democrats in our delegation are not there yet. I've not publicly. They're using terms like public option, but that's uh, far from Medicare for all. Exactly. It's mu- it's much different. But you're right. She was trolling her colleagues on that. She's the only one who's come out forcefully on that. But since since we're on that topic, real quickly, speaking of trolling, Dina Titus also trolled uh, uh, Jackie Rosen, who she might get into that uh, uh, race against, and uh, the entire, I think, House delegation on Yucca Mountain this week. Did she not? 
Yeah, she put out a tweet <laughs> saying, like, you know, while uh, my colleagues Ruben Kewin and Jackie Rosen were doing a Facebook, you know, live town hall, I was testifying against Yucca funding. Hope you guys can join me next time. And, you know, I don't know if it's Dina just having fun on Twitter. Um, She's or... definitely having fun by doing it. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like she is sort of her own entity and she's not part of the sort of Harry Reid machine where everyone sort of comes from the same kind of background and has similar styles of press releases and tweets and sort of the same sort of uh, talking yeah, talking points. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. And, you know, she said, I think in, by mid-August, she'll make a decision on jumping uh, in that Senate race. And she's definitely kept a lot of us, you know, guessing on what she wants to do. I still say no. Uh, she won't get in. Uh, luckily, this isn't being recorded, right? So no one. She's going to listen and get in just to prove you wrong. Yeah, John. <laughs> that's probably right. Uh, I just think she'll keep her safe uh, uh, house seat. But by the way, uh, uh, Riley, I need, I need your uh, opinion on this. Uh, Ruben Kiwin started a pack, a leadership pack. Uh, what's the name of that pack? It's uh, the Key Wins Pack. Uh, do we like that name? Do we think it's too clever? Do we think it's uh, not clever? What, what, where is it on the cleverness scale, would you say? It was that? always going to be hard to top Hell or High Water, Dean Heller's uh, leadership <laughs> pack, but I think it's a pretty good effort by uh, his, his team. And and as Tick Segerblum uh, uh, put out on uh, Twitter, we may talk about him in, in a moment. At least now everybody will know how to pronounce his name Yeah, uh, <laughs> because it's Keywin and no one knows that. So speaking of, uh, of, of all of that, let's, let's go to one of our uh, features for the week, which are public officials on the move and and I'm sure that before uh, I'm saying this or while I'm saying this our producer Joey Lovato will have some great theme music uh, for public officials uh, on the move that that, that he will be uh, inserting uh, into this Let's go kind of uh, backwards uh, in, 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 and start today with what happened. Uh, there was big news that you put out first, Riley. Uh, a, a, a legend in some ways uh, is leaving the legislature. Who? Yeah, uh, Senator Don Gustafson. And who, you might ask. Uh, Don Gustafson has been in the legislature since, I think, 1998. Uh, he was in the state assembly for a long time, and he just got elected to the state. I think Senate. there was a gap in there. I think he lost. Then, yeah, and, and, and then he came back. At least one yeah. cycle. Um, right. But he represents a very rural, very conservative area. He's a former truck driver. Um, his biggest legislative accomplishments include getting the speed limit to be raised to 80 miles per hour. That was permissive, but it actually has gone up to 80. So he was also a huge proponent of uh, repealing the helmet law. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he never got that on. Never got the repeal never of the helmet on. Pulled that one off. So the helmet stayed on. <laughs> uh, so we see it in the legislature, in the Senate, uh, a lot of times a twenty to Gustafson vote. He mm-hmm. was, you know, the furthest right of all his colleagues. Yeah, but I do think like I saw a lot of Democratic senators saying like, you know, we wish you well, Don. I don't think he really, you know, pushed a lot of people's buttons the wrong way. You kind of knew where he was coming from. You knew what perspective you were getting. Uh, from him. And I think that, you know, there, there's other people who don't have that same kind of respect in, in the Nevada legislature. Yeah, I think he, he doesn't have an acidic personality. Everyone kind of likes Gustafson, but they just think that he doesn't have a green button on his desk, right? He's just going to vote against everything. And do we think that someone who may have a slightly more acidic personality, Ira Hansen, is going to run for that seat? Ryan? Yeah. Uh, so I talked to Ira during the session and I put out a few tweets and there was, you know, this threat of a primary between Ira and Don Gustafson. Um, but what Ira told me was that him and Don had come to an agreement that he would stay in the assembly while Don was in the Senate, and then they'd revise it four years later. So I need to get in touch with Ira and see what's going on there. But uh, he did say during the session he fully intended to run for state Senate just because you have a lot more power as opposed to, uh, you know, an assemblyman in the minority. I'm sure all of those senators will be welcoming Ira with open arms. He is always going always gonna to be entertaining, and he'll actually have a lot more power with only uh, 21. All right, our next uh, public official on the move. You, you did a, a, a story on this, uh, Michelle Dan Claych. 
uh, the former chancellor who kind of left under a cloud reappeared. Where has he reappeared? <laughs> well, uh, Dan Claych has reemerged on the board of the Governor's Office of Economic Development. Uh, so he's going to have a vote there. They're the ones that review tax abatement and incentive packages. Riley actually spotted him, made the first Dan Claych sighting mm -hmm. last week. Um, yeah, so Dan Claych had been, um, I don't know if forced out was the word. It was, a, it was a retirement he chose. He asked the regents, please let me retire early. Uh, because he had been involved in this um, controversy about uh, when when legislators were doing the funding formula five years ago or so, uh, they had a, a consultant that was sort of presented as an independent entity, but was actually working very closely to help advance the agenda of of the Nevada system of higher education. So. Um, Bethany Barnes at the Las Vegas Review Journal did a, an investigation into the emails and, and the tone and uh, what what this relationship between this independent consultant was. And, and it angered a lot of the legislators who, uh, you know, believe that the, the Nevada system of higher education tries to kind of drive the car sometimes and uh, steamroll over some of what the legislature wants them to do. They're, they're sort of like a more independent of the legislature than, say, uh, you know, K-12 education. So, uh, but Dan Claych took a one-year, $300,000-plus kind of severance package. He he basically was paid for the remainder of his contract, which would have ended June 2017, uh, has kept a low profile, and uh, but is now the governor, apparently, was the one that called him and asked him to jump back onto this uh economic development board so i back. think they have the secret northern nevada handshake going or something <laughs> like that you know you get a three hundred thousand dollars severance package when you leave under a cloud i wonder if you don't leave under a cloud what the severance package is uh but yeah clay is back and people should know too the governor's office of economic development that's a that's a big this is a big deal uh, they make a lot of important decisions, as you mentioned, on tax abatements. Riley just did a story last week that we talked about on tax abatements. There are significant decisions made on that board. Um, so another uh, uh, public official uh, who is not going to have to move, at least not yet, is uh, Heidi Ganser, who was uh, sued over her supposed uh, violation of the separation of powers clause. And what happened this week? Um, so Heidi uh, won in court this week. Uh, there was a ruling from the bench by a district court judge. Unfortunately, I wasn't there because Carson City is not a day's drive away from uh, Vegas or at least too convenient to get to. Um, Are you complaining about our travel budget at the Nevada Independent, right? Not at all, John. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, yeah, uh, she put out on Twitter. I texted her and messaged her, um, talked to some guys. It was this conservative think tank called uh, the Nevada Policy Research Institute that brought the lawsuit. They've been sort of angling to do this for a while. They brought a similar one against a state senator back in 2013. Their whole argument is that you cannot have a position in the executive branch anywhere and also serve as a legislator. Heidi Ganser, for those who don't know, serves this sort of executive role at the University of Nevada, Reno, where she's the director of external relations. It's a $170,000 a year job. It was sort of kind of created for her after she left uh, her position as chief of staff Soft for Governor landing. Sandoval. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they brought this lawsuit. This is a question that the state Supreme Court has never really answered or dealt with. Um, the state's Legislative Council Bureau, which is sort of a law firm for legislators, says this is fine as long as you're not executing executive power. You can do this. You know, you can be a janitor for a school district and not execute uh, executive power. Um, and then Brian Sandoval himself in, in 2004 when he was attorney general had a, a, an opinion or issued, which again is non-binding, but it sort of came to an opposite conclusion. So 
there's a lot of legal watchers who just want an answer to this to get some kind of clarity. Uh, the judge did move to dismiss the suit. Heidi kind of declared victory. She said, I think in a tweet and in a statement to me that, you know, I'm glad this has been settled. MPRI still has the, the right to appeal and, and kind of keep moving this through the process. But at least for now, it, it looks like, you know, she can keep staying in the legislature. And the state Supreme Court, if this were appealed to the state Supreme Court, could finally come down with something definitive, could they not, Riley, in terms of, uh, you mentioned a lot of people want to know the answer to this, been watched for years, questions about separation of powers. They could theoretically take a case like this and have a presidential ruling, right? Absolutely. And then this would affect a lot more people than Senator Gansard, because there's a lot of teachers who serve in the legislature. There's a lot of... Um, you know, different officials. Uh, the, the one case I mentioned that was brought before was against Senator Mo Dennison. He was an IT guy for the Public Utilities Commission. And so, you know, that's kind of the the up and downside of having a part-time legislature is you have a lot of people who are involved in government um, who could potentially be affected by this. I, I'd have to go back and look. And Megan and Michelle did a really good story and kind of a deep dive into sort of the history and especially the legal background in this case um, that we did a few months ago. But yeah, you know, there, there's a, many legislators, a lot of people whose lives would be affected if the state Supreme Court does take this up and make a ruling on it. Yeah, potentially they could be at least, if they, depending on where, where they drew the line and what, 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 where you can serve and where you can't. Mo Dennis, who you mentioned was just an IT guy for the Public Utilities Commission, mm -hmm. resigned his job so this never there was never a ruling. You would think that NPRI, the, the, the conservative think tank, would want to take this to the next step to try to get a ruling from the state Supreme Court so we know once and for all. Maybe we'll only have like 17 legislators uh, next time if they all get kicked out because of a ruling. Uh, speaking of, of, of Tick Segerblum, who we mentioned earlier, uh, I think he's the only legislator, maybe the only elected official, uh, Michelle, who would actually tweet a check uh, that he received. What was that about? So, uh, yeah, on Monday, we got a tweet from Tick that uh, he had his first $5,000 contribution to his county commission race. And uh, as you pointed out, it's a marijuana company, of course. Uh, so that was the first clue that, okay, he's for sure in. Now, he's kind of been openly exploring this possibility. We had a story almost a month ago that he was interested in um, doing the county commission. We but. should say, because I gather they're complaining about it, and they always give credit to other news organizations, that the Review Journal had that story mm -hmm. first about a month ago, and they were quite upset that we made it sound like this was a big deal, I gather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but he did he did get this $5,000 check from a marijuana company that he posted on Twitter mm -hmm. and essentially said, I want more, right? Essentially, that was what that tweet was about. Yeah, he made it clear that September 21st is the next fundraiser. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... Tick Sagerbloom, uh, you know, at the local government level, he'll probably still be doing a lot of marijuana policy. Uh, and, you know, there was this bill that would have allowed public consumption and marijuana lounges in the state. It, it died. It just didn't have enough support in the legislature. Um, but it's an issue he'd still like to, to pass. So I could see him potentially getting something going for Clark County that would uh, allow this industry to really pick up among tourists. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure his interest in marijuana policy will not wane when he comes <laughs> into the local government, assuming he wins that race. And he's certainly got to be seen as the favorite. Speaking of money, Riley, you did a roundup uh, this week, I, I believe, of, of the second quarter fundraising for the uh, congressional delegation. Yeah, so I took a look, and Megan Meshley did as well, um, at some of the interesting donors to the, the six members of our congressional delegation. Dean Hallard led the pack because he... Um, is running for Senate in re-election. He raised $1.4 million. He's a bunch of uh, cash on hand. Uh, Jackie Rosen, who's in for Senate, made the announcement after the uh, fundraising deadline had passed. So I think she ended up coming in, in second in terms of money raised, even just for that House race. 
What was interesting to me, and we were talking about this a little bit um, before the show started, was that Dina Titus, someone who was also considering jumping in for a Senate race, raised less than $100,000 during the, the, this reporting period, which ran from, I believe, April to the end of June. And, you know, $100,000 is a lot of money. It's nothing to scoff at. But compared to what her colleagues did in the House and especially in the Senate, she's really further behind in terms of fundraising. Obviously, if she jumps in, that's a very competitive primary. Uh, Jackie Rosen has, like, sort of a lot more establishment support um, to, to rely on in terms of that. That's not everything that, that makes and breaks a race, but I think that that's going to be a pretty significant factor for her in deciding whether or not to jump in. Well, Dina Titus generally doesn't have to raise much money, we should tell people. She's in a very safe uh, uh, congressional district, so she generally doesn't have to spend much money to fend off what are usually token opponents. She would need a lot more money. As you mentioned, Dean Heller, I think he has $3.5 million on, on hand, something like that, and Jackie Rosen has much less than that, so he has, goes in with a large fundraising event. Someone like just if you remember the numbers, Mark Amaday, who was generally thought to be in a safe seat up north, he rarely raises that much money. He doesn't even have six figures, right? He raised more than six figures oh, did. Uh, this cycle. There's a lot of uh, well-connected people in Reno who uh, Congressman Amaday tapped into. Um, so, yeah, you know, Dina's uh, fundraising amounts were sort of noteworthy, but they were all within like the 180 to 300,000 range, including Senator Cortez Masto, our other senator. She won't be on the ballot until 2022 unless she runs for another office. Um, but even she, you know, was able to raise a pretty significant amount of money. Do you have inside information on another office that she's running for? We, Riley, uh, do you want to announce it on this podcast? John, I thought we were breaking news on the podcast. That was our, our new gimmick. <laughs> That's right, exactly. All right, a few more stories I want to talk about. Uh, Michelle, you uh, wrote a piece about uh, Governor Sandoval. Uh, commenting on, uh, this was quite a national story, uh, the president suddenly out of nowhere in a series of tweets suddenly said that transgender people cannot serve in the military. This was very controversial, especially compared to what he said uh, about the LGBTQ community during the, the, the election and how his daughter, Ivanka Trump, seems to be very supportive of that community. Uh, and, and then suddenly out of nowhere he said, you're not going to be able to serve. There, there are thousands upon thousands of transgender people in the military. And so you tried to get reaction from the governor. Uh, was this before or after he was off on his jaunt that I should that Riley's upset I didn't send uh, send somebody on with the that travel budget, right? I mean, yeah. he... I think he was in Peru at the time. <clears throat> he was in Peru. Um, but from my understanding, you know, he, he heard about it pretty quickly. And uh, he heard about it. There's a transgender member of the Nevada National Guard who's been serving since 2009. And uh, this person kind of immediately after the Trump tweets uh, spoke out to some of the local Reno media. And uh, so the governor was quite concerned about this case and what would happen to Sam Hunt is his name. He ended up issuing a statement saying that he consulted with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and <laughs> determined that there would be no policy changes in Nevada based on this series of, what was it, three or four tweets on Tuesday morning. Um, he did leave open the door for action should the Department of Defense make us, you know, a formal policy. And uh, even the proponents, you know, two senators, uh, Pat Spearman and, and David Parks, who are both veterans and active on LGBT advocacy, um, you know, they urged him to make some executive order protecting guardsmen, but it's unclear that that would be able to do much in the face of a 
of an executive order from the president or from something from the Department of Defense. So uh, it sounds like he's trying to do what is within his realm of authority at this point. Uh, and, and there's been nothing formal from the DOD, just the series of tweets at this point. A lot of the national reporting indicates that there's no policy that they were surprised uh, by, by, by the president uh, doing this. But at least, and Sandoval wasn't the only governor to do this, to send a signal that they, they were going to try to protect the transgender people already in uh, the military. A couple other stories, uh, O'Reilly. Uh, you, you did a piece uh, that, that uh, I think is really, it's just classic uh, story that's going to get a lot of, of, of attention, I think, on the site, and that is that the county, Clark County, uh, which you cover, uh, paid, I think, $86,000 almost uh, last year uh, uh, for a contract for a company to wash the, the company cars, right? Yeah, I've never thought this much about car washes in my <laughs> entire life. Um, Do you not get your car washed regularly? Are we not? Uh, not you're making all kinds of insinuations about the Nevada Independent. On my next expense report, you're <laughs> okay. going to see a bunch from Terrible Hearst. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, uh, at the Clark County Commission meeting last week, um, Commissioner Steve Sisolak, who, again, is running for governor, he's the, the chairman of the commission, had a lot of questions about uh, a contract. Normally, the, the Clark County Commission will just sort of put everything on a consent agenda. It will just get all approved um, without a lot of questions. But he had a lot of questions about this contract. So Clark County has a fleet of several thousand vehicles. They're used for various purposes. They're used for family services. They're used for park police, a bunch of different reasons. And, of course, they have to clean these cars. You can't expect the employees to clean them themselves. So... What the county did in 2011 was uh, enter into a contract with this business called Vasquez Car Cleaning, um, worth up to $150,000 every year to do exterior cleanings, interior and exterior, and then full detail cleanings of uh, cars that belong to the county. And so, you know, Sisolak is saying, you know, why, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to get their cars cleaned? Because, again, they're not going to somewhere in North Las Vegas where this company is based. They come out to the, the Clark County Commission building and they'll clean the car for you while you're at work. So... They've kind of pitched it as a productivity thing, so you don't have to get in line at Terrible Hearst. But, you know, the, the money that they're spending on this is kind of it, – uh, it, the mobile car washes are very much more expensive than, you know, going through the, the tunnel car washes that everyone sort of thinks of when you go on a car wash. So they spent $86,000 on this last year. It averaged out, I think, to like $22 a car wash. And then uh, the county also has a, a number of contracts with the tunnel washers, and those – cost, you know, just a, a couple dollars. They only spent $18,000 on, uh, I think, several thousand of those cars being washed. Obviously, like, you can't get, you know, you lose some time and some productivity. I'm sure there's a, a formula or something out there in terms of how this is, makes sense for the county, but I just thought it was interesting to see, you know, which departments use the service the most. Sisolak told me that he heard from some county employees who didn't know this was a service that was available to them. Uh, family services, I think, have like the most car washes just because they have a lot of children they have to transport, and I guess their cars get dirty on the inside and outside. So it was an, an interesting look. Um, Sisolak has always been interesting to me as a Democrat just because, you know, uh, Michelle talked to him and he wouldn't call himself a progressive and he's running in a Democratic primary. Now he's kind of, you know, raising questions about car wash perks that county employees might get for the cars that they have. So there's a lot of interesting parts in this story. Yeah, you're right about that. And it's right in his wheelhouse for how he has behaved as a, as a Clark County commissioner. And yet he raised all these questions and then voted for it, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, he just kind of, everyone else is voting for it. So I guess it must not be too big of a problem. They extended the contract up until 2018. So it'll go out for a bit at that point, or they, they could continue to not have it. Um, you know, it, it, it did pass unanimously. I think it's working out for the county. I just thought it was interesting that they're spending, you know, 80,000 bucks on, on car washes. 
$22 per car wash, yeah. exactly. All right. Finally, uh, Michelle, you had a really interesting story. Uh, apparently, some, some uh, death row inmate wants to actually do what is never done, and that's actually be executed. But there's a problem. So, yeah, uh, yesterday there was a hearing in Clark County Court, and this uh, guy named Scott Dozier, who has been asking for a long time, kind of tempting the state to execute him. Uh, he's He's been on death row for 10 years um, and does not want to pursue any further appeals, does not want to spare his own life. He wants to be put to death. So the judge said there's nothing standing in the way of it. He's not incompetent to make that decision for himself. But uh, the problem is on the state's end in that the drugs that Nevada needs to carry out a lethal injection are not available anymore. They're, uh, they've expired. And in the 10 plus years since Nevada has had an execution, the last one was in 2006, uh, a lot of drug companies have really come out against lethal injection, do not want any of their products used. So this becomes a, a subject of, of major litigation, major controversy. Uh, one case that I pointed to was the one in Arkansas this spring when Arkansas faced the expiration of one of it, one of the drugs in the lethal injection cocktail. And uh, in a race against that expiration date, because if you use an, an expired drug, you're opening yourself up to a bunch of lawsuits. Um, they scheduled eight executions in the course of 11 days. And it was just kind of this weird, creepy thing to to base all your executions on the expiration date of a drug. Um, but we, we face that same issue. There's no easy answer. The state didn't have a response as to what are they going to do? They don't know to what they're going to do. I mean, theoretically, this guy has the right to be executed, right? And so mm -hmm. he's asking to be executed. What do they do if they don't have the drugs? Can they get them anywhere? So one thing that the prison's chief James Zarenda had said earlier this spring is there might be a way to get the drug from another state that has a supply, does not have any execution scheduled, and hasn't expired. But the details of that are unclear. They're they're consulting with the attorney general's office because I'm sure there's some legal hurdles to transfers of drugs and, and everything like that. So uh, they were not forthcoming with details on, on what they, they plan to do. They believe they can do it. They're saying they're expressing some confidence that it can happen. But I think we're going to going to see a, a rocky road as we head toward the execution date, which is the week of October 16th. And, you know, another thing to keep in mind is the state just spent almost a million dollars to refurbish a room in right. Ely State Prison to create a new death chamber. So we're kind of ready for an execution and yet do not have the drugs. And and there's not another option. You, in Nevada law, you have to use the lethal injection. Very bizarre story. I mean, it really, it really is. All right. We're now at the uh, point of, of the program where I get to ask my reporters uh, uh, what they're working on for the weekend, and they're, they're saying to themselves, oh, oh, now I really have to get that story done that I'm about to talk about. <laughs> Riley, what are you working on for the weekend? Let's uh, give our podcast listeners a heads up. As you would say, John, my story's pretty lit this weekend. <laughs> uh, I just have – I've been working on the, uh, the congressional tracker, and I actually uh, came across something interesting. Typically – we do this feature every Saturday for people who don't check the, the website out on weekends for whatever reason, where we'll, we'll track all the roll call votes that members of the delegation took. And typically, the three Democrats in the House delegation, um, Ruben Keewen, Dina Titus, Jackie Rosen, will sort of vote in lockstep. And one thing I found um, this weekend was that Jackie Rosen broke with her colleagues on an amendment that would have stripped language that would have prohibited uh, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay from being transferred 
to the United States and for any funds being used to house those prisoners. So she and I think 21 other Democrats uh, voted in favor of that. All the other Democrats voted against it. So that was an interesting, you know, kind of because she is running for Senate. I think I, I look at some of her votes with the closer mic. Right. Uh, magnifying glass but yeah that'll be out tomorrow that's really interesting i want to tell people you really should check the independent site on saturday we have two great features one is the one riley just uh, referred to which is the tracking the votes we also track all the press releases uh, they put out and, and and some of them put out more than others and the topics are, are, are always very interesting and i think illustrative of what they're very interested in all right michelle what are you working on so I'm going to put this on the record so that I have to finish it this weekend. Um, yeah, so I've been uh, exploring the topic of NAFTA and what has its effect been on, uh, you know, the U.S. job market. Uh, of course, Trump, the Trump administration announced that they're, they've got some objectives. They want to renegotiate this contract. That negotiation could start as soon as August 16th. Uh, it could start after that. There's not a hard, fast deadline there. Um, but we're, you know, we're here. We are uh, in the era of of Trump and, and he, all he's said about trade deals from NAFTA and TPP and all that he's talked about about jobs moving to Mexico. Uh, that's the context in which we're now getting back to the table with Canada and Mexico. Um, so working on a story that'll have. Uh, context about the effect in in Nevada and, and Governor Sandoval uh, has even been involved. The Prime Minister of Canada was at the National Governors Association Convention, kind of talking with the governors, bolstering up those relationships, kind of in what appeared to be a backstop, uh, trying to build goodwill and uh, ensure they get something good out of out of the trade deal and don't get steamrolled in, in these negotiations. So you're sure you're going to get that done. We're not going to be talking about this on next week's podcast. I right? have to get it done yeah. now. So. All right. You have to get it done. All right. <laughs> Michelle and Riley, thanks uh, for, for, for coming on. It's all the time uh, we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, yes, praise, email us at ideas at com. That's ideas at com. And please check out your our site if you haven't already. We've talked about it a little bit. The Nevada Independent com and rate us on iTunes and please subscribe. You can find us on all kinds of other platforms too. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to thank the wonderful people here at the uh, the studios of KUNV on the beautiful campus of UNLV. Is it nicer than the UNR? Uh, Riley, I put you on the spot. What do you think? Because um, they're listening, I'll have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, to that the, the 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 northern guy won't even give the South any props at all. KUNV folks have been great here. Their crew is great, and we love being hosted by them. And as always. I want to give many thanks to Joey Lovato, who is our producer and makes us all, as I say every week. What's the phrase I use, Riley? Podcast smooth. Listen to Riley be podcast smooth. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. say john my story's pretty lit this weekend uh pretty lit this weekend pretty lit 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 pretty lit